This WBEZ podcast is supported by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Suicide is a topic that hides in the shadows. It's time we talk away the dark, learn how to spot the warning signs for suicide, and how you can have an open, caring, real conversation to help save lives. Visit the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to watch the new short film and learn more at AFSP.org slash talkawaythedark. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is WBEZ's Weekly News Recap. Coming up on The Recap, Chicago launches a security camera rebate program to help curb crime. Today is a solution that the community can empower itself to help itself remain safer. Darren Bailey is the apparent front runner in the Republican race for governor. A new WBEZ Chicago Sun-Times poll finds State Senator Darren Bailey with a nearly two-to-one lead over his next closest rival, Aurora Mayor Richard Irvin. The House Committee's hearing on the January 6th U.S. Capitol attack is underway. January 6th was the culmination of an attempted coup. And Mayor Lori Lightfoot officially jumps into the race for the city's top job. Mayor Lori Lightfoot wasted no time before hitting the campaign trail less than 24 hours after making her re-election bid official. Our panel today is WVON commentator and attorney Kimberly Agoin, David Grising, president of the Better Government Association, and Dan Mihalopoulos, WBEZ investigative reporter. They join me now for those stories and more. After much anticipation, Mayor Lori Lightfoot finally announced her bid for re-election this week. In her video, she embraced critiques of her style and personality. Let's listen. And I'll be the first to admit, I'm just not the most patient person. I'm only human. And I guess sometimes it shows. But just because some may not always like my delivery doesn't mean we're not delivering. Kimberly, what do you make of her messaging? Well, it, it looks like she has very similar messaging to when uh, former Mayor Rahm Emanuel was forced into a runoff for his uh, second term for office, and he tried to show us a kinder, kinder, gentler Rahm Emanuel while owning up to some of his, what we would say, personality flaws. I think that's what she, the tact that she is taking with that um that announcement. She does have several people who have already announced that they are going to run against her, including one alderman who um, has been someone who's been vocally opposed to her, Alderman Ray Lopez, but then also another alderman who has been pretty much in lockstep with her throughout her entire tenure, and that's Alderman Rod Sawyer, who mm-hmm. hasn't formally announced yet, but has announced that he may announce. So she she definitely has her work cut out for her trying to kind of distance herself from some of the personality issues that people have with her and to try and stand on whatever record she, she feels she has uh, the best shot at standing on. Mm-hmm. The announcement also comes on the heels of her saying that uh, people who are charged with violent crimes, uh, they shouldn't be allowed out on bond. She insinuated that they're guilty before they've been convicted. Can you explain that, David? Well, her thinking is that uh, given the record that Kim Fox, the state's attorney, has had and 
uh, how how um, reluctant Cut Fox has been to bring cases is those few cases she brings. Uh, yeah, those people are probably guilty. But of course, that flies in the face of constitutional law and also of practice, frankly, because um, a certain percentage of people are found not guilty at trial. And due process is really important. Um, it was really an overreach on the on the mayor's part, and I'm guessing uh, she regrets the statement. Kimberly, let's remember the mayor's a lawyer and former prosecutor. So what are the potential implications here? Well, it definitely, um, when I read it, I am an attorney, so when I read it, it jumped off the page to me in bright letters because I've never heard someone say something like that. And the other thing we have to kind of think about, we're in the city of Chicago, state of Illinois, and there isn't uh, probably a month that goes by that we don't have someone who is released from prison or who wins a settlement against the criminal justice system here because they were falsely prosecuted, spent 20, 25 years in jail. So it's not this is not something that should be casually thrown around. I do understand the frustration. I think many people do understand the frustration of uh, many of many of the criminals or some of the criminals, people who are actually formerly convicted of crimes or formerly accused of crimes, recommitting crimes. We get that. But to say something that flies directly in the face of the Constitution, that is problematic, and you're going to see that during uh, the election. Let's dig into bail reform. Um, David, I'm looking at you. Earlier this year, the governor passed a bill that ensures certain people who can't afford to pay bail don't have to wait for their trial while they're in jail. But the mayor is blaming the legislation for high crime rates. What does the data actually show? Well, I think she's focused also on a program that that the head of the Cook County Courts, uh, Tim Evans, has put into place, which releases people pre-trial unless they are determined to have represent a a threat to the community. And uh, what the Cook County Courts, what Evans people will say is, uh, th- those people are not responsible for this crime wave, that um, the people who are out on pretrial release, uh, in only 3% of the cases, do they commit a violent crime of some sort. And when you look at the record in Cook County, uh, in Chicago, the, the police actually bring a case in only half the cases. We have no idea who's committing half of the murders or the shootings, et cetera. And so um, it's really the the numbers just don't add up when Lori Lightfoot tries to claim that bail reform is responsible for this big crime wave. Dan, the the mayor's also pinned a lot of the blame on state attorney Kim Fox for for the high rates of crime. She says that the uh, the state's attorney's standards of proof beyond a reasonable doubt uh, before bringing charges, that that's too high. Can you explain that? Uh, Yeah. I mean, what we have to understand is the context here. We just had... Um, a wave of prosecutors elected uh, promising to consider the rights of the accused in a much more fulsome way than it has been done in the past in this country. Um, And you had Kim Fox elected a few years back as part of this wave of sort of new breed um, prosecutors. San Francisco recalled one of the major figures in this wave of, mm-hmm. of new wave prosecutors um, because they felt that uh, things had gone too far to the other extreme. And so, you know, on a, on a case-by-case basis, is it fair to criticize Kim Fox? That's almost impossible to know in the sense that every case is, is different. The facts uh, are, are different in every case, um, and there are so many cases. Yeah. Uh, having said all that, you know, does it I – th- I think what you're seeing here is a mayor – who is highly cognizant of this political environment where yeah, people... Yeah, like, does the mayor have a point? 
Well, people people uh, who are vi- victims of crime, people who are living in communities where they're fearing rising crime, absolutely um, uh, deserve uh, somebody, you know, to, to say that, that criminals, when they're, the facts are against them, and beyond a reasonable doubt, should be prosecuted to the fullest extent. Is it fair on, on Kim Fox? I don't know. But uh, she, the mayor and her um, police superintendent have been uh, trying to lean in on this. And if we go back for just a sec to uh, where we started in terms of the mayor's style, I also thought a lot like Kim at first, oh, this is, is this Lori Lightfoot's floppy sweater moment? Remember that ad with Rom where he wore the floppy sweater to try to soften himself up? But I, I heard from some of, of the mayor's people, and it's quite the opposite, I think, that they're aiming for here. She's leaning into the fact that yeah. she's, uh, you know, a bad bad lady. So I'm the, you know? I'll be the first to admit. I'm tough. Exactly. But and I, I see it very— I'm doing things. <laughs> that right. was sort of the message for <laughs> right. two so and a half I, minutes. <laughs> I think it's not an apology from Lori Lightfoot by any stretch for the way that she's uh, conducted herself, but— Certainly, it's an acknowledgement that it's been an issue, and uh, she shoots from the hip. And here we see again with the this whole uh, guilty before proven guilty situation, mm-hmm. um, another example of that. Well, Kimberly, sh- Chicago has a history, as we know, of paying millions of dollars in wrongful convictions and has led the country in the number of exonerations for the past four years. So is there room for some of the caution here in bringing these charges? Um. I think that the Constitution has to be followed. That That's the number one thing. And uh, there have been, we're storied. We're, it's, there's a, a storied history here of being the false, um, there, people basically being forced to make confessions or being convicted, even though there's evidence to the contrary. And so it, it just, you have to really pay attention to any, anyone who would say that we need to basically lock people up, whether they have done it or not, because we know they're guilty. Yeah. That is problematic. And I have to go back to what I believe uh, Dan just said. This idea of the pointing the blame at all the different offices, the prosecutor's fault, the judge's fault, when the city still has one of the lowest case closure rate of anywhere and that is problematic because there are so many people who are not even being found, whether it's carjackings, whether it's the killers of Aaliyah Newell that we don't hear anything about, the people who kidnapped Kiara Coles. I mean, there are so many people who have had crimes committed against them, and the, the, we have not heard anything about it from Chicago Police Department. Mm-hmm. It's very difficult for the administration to point the fingers at any other office other than their own. And it's particularly tough for her because she ran as being tough on cops. She ran in the aftermath of the Laquan McDonald murder and ran as the, the, the critic of the Chicago police. And then when you have a crime wave and you need the Chicago police to be effective out on the streets and the police rank and file can't stand the sight of you, turn their backs on you when a cop was shot, um, you've got a real problem. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, what she's not completely reckoning with. And when she has alienated Kim Fox and the head of the Cook County Courts, it makes it hard. Yeah, she's a tough person. She likes that tough image, as Dan is saying. But in the real world, trying to get work done, it really complicates things a lot. Let's switch gears, David. The uh, alderman, Michael Scott, from the 24th Ward, he resigned earlier this month. 
Mayor Lightfoot has formed a three-person committee to recommend a replacement. What do we know about that long list of <laughs> folks who have applied so far? Uh, it's a really long list. So long, uh, like 20, what nineteen? Yeah, 20? and Where are we growing, at? no doubt. Um, you know, the the sort of uh, leader in the clubhouse may be the the daughter of Michael Scott, Monique Scott. This would make her sort of the third generation oh, of. I'm, I'm sorry, sister of Scott. This would make her the the third Scott uh, to serve in a high profile mm-hmm. position in the city. Um, uh, it's unclear ultimately where this will go. Um, uh, but Monique is, has the name recognition and, uh, that's the person I would keep an eye on, I guess. Yeah. Dan, our colleague, Patrick Smith, he reported this week, the number of young people who are being held in juvenile detention after their sentence, that is up and it's increasing. Uh, this is because the Department of Children and Family Services doesn't actually have enough beds for them. Fill us in. Yeah, this is really a sad story. I mean, it's a cruel practice that Patrick Smith put the spotlight on. And by the way, this is one of those stories where Patrick did the first story on this in 2015. Things got better. Now you check again. Things have backslid. Gotten way worse. um, And gotten way worse uh, in the last couple of years. And so um, kudos to him for kind of being persistent with the story over all these years uh, because you have young people who um, have – uh, completed their sentence, Cook County Juvenile Jail. They've been ordered to be released. Nowhere to send them to. And this is on DCFS, uh, on the State uh, Department of Children and Family Services. And, um, you know, this story, again, is putting the pressure on them. Uh, there's all sorts of problems, obviously, yeah. always in that uh, realm of state government. And so we'd love to hear what uh, J.B. Pritzker and the lawmakers in Springfield have to say about that. Yeah. Kimberly, what do you make of this? Well, it, it's just a failure at so many different levels because DCFS, well, I don't know about many different levels, definitely at one, it appears that DCFS got rid of 500 residential group home beds um, basically before they created any foster home beds. And they did that with this idea, like there were these wraparound services and the, the village was going to take care of the children, but the, there were no provisions met. And right now, the chairman or the director of DCFS, he's been held in contempt so many times. It's like a, a compulsory thing. It's, it's, it's mm-hmm. happening every month. But imagine being a child and just feeling like you're completely unwanted. And many of these children, uh, if their guardian would pick them up, then they'd have somewhere to go. Their guardians won't pick them up. They have no place to go. They're spending their holidays. They're spending every day. And we're talking about child, a child doing that. It's something that watching it happen at the state level and no one is doing anything to take care of this with these large budgets that they have, it's it's inexplicable. No one can explain this. Yeah. Kimberly, sticking with you, uh, I want to talk about anti-crime initiatives. The city officially launched its camera rebate program that's going to fund the purchase of essentially home security equipment. Give us the details. Yeah. Yeah, so the initiative was released uh, some time ago, and I guess people now can go ahead and sign up for it, that if you can show proof of purchase of home security cameras that you will install at your house, you can get a rebate for that from the city, from money. Um, and the city is also hopeful that you will register your camera and you will allow them to see, see the footage in case a crime does occur. Now, that part is not mandatory, but it's one of those tools, you know, many 
some years ago, probably under 10 years ago, uh, there was a judge who was killed on the south side of Chicago. And the way in which they found the killers was they were able to get access to cameras from local residents and just kind of do, do a timeline of who the people were who killed him. So they're kind of trying to rely on cameras all around the city to get, get some of these crimes on camera to to hopefully lower the amount of crime, but also to assist them in solving crimes. We'll see if that works. We actually asked Tamara Mahal, who's the city's chief coordination officer of community safety. We had her on reset earlier this week, and we asked her to respond to the criticism that that money could have been used uh, to more effectively to, to address the root causes of crime. Now, she said the city's taking a public health approach to public safety. Let's listen. And what that means for us is that we have to utilize our funding to address a variety of different methods um, to reduce violence. We are investing over $400 million of American Rescue Plan funds to address things like infrastructure in our communities, creating programs to address those at higher risk, expand summer jobs. And yes, a very small portion of that funding, $5.2 million, is going to support these tools and resources. What do you think, David? Well, this speaks to the gov- the mayor's um, whole-of-government approach to trying to solve the violent crime problem in the city. That sort of high-minded idea is good. It, it's, it's helpful if you're effective in the basics of police work. Um, if you're not effective in the basics of police work, it doesn't solve yeah. the problem in an immediate enough way. Great and, point. And so that that's what we have here. We don't have a strategy on the part of David Brown, the superintendent, that has been articulated so that the rank-and-file cops out there can follow them. And this whole idea, of, as one example, he wanted these positive interactions, and we're going to have more than a million, a million point four, I think it was, positive interactions. Well, it turns out that people on the street, when a cop approaches them to have a positive interaction, <laughs> often feel threatened for good reason, given the history of the relations between cops and the community. Yeah. And so it's just that the, they've got to figure out the basics of policing while also doing this other work that uh, we're talking about. Last year, a video went viral showing a white police officer grabbing a young black woman who was walking her dog at North Avenue Beach at midnight. I know you all remember this one. Uh, that officer resigned this week before an official disciplinary action had been handed down. Dan, does the resignation absolve him of any disciplinary actions uh, that might still come down? Uh, yeah, I, I don't know what would happen next, um, but um, Officer Bruce Dyker, I think I'm pronouncing that right, has been with the Chicago police since 1998. That's the officer in this incident. Um, he had 25 complaints against him, three sustained. I wow. think we've seen over the years a rather low rate of sustaining complaints, although yeah, there there are a lot of issues with that system, and uh, COPA, which which is the body that looks into these sort of cases and recommends discipline, had provided their recommendations in October. Uh, you know, we see a lot of cases where um, people uh, quit uh, before they can be fired, so I guess this is probably another case yeah. where... And COPA, um, just yeah. so we're clear, being the uh, Civilian Office of Police Accountability, right, Dan? Correct. Yeah. We'll have to see what happens there, because, I mean, you just because the, you quit the, doesn't... The video, is, not... the video is upsetting. It's I, I very mean, upsetting. He, he stalks this young woman who maybe she was in the park. She shouldn't have been at North Avenue Beach at that time. But there was a way that he could have handled I mean, this. Even as she says, I'm yeah. leaving, he's like yeah. following her. Yes. You know? Yeah.
So we've talked about Mayor Lori Lightfoot's re-election bid and the city's security camera rebate program, but of course, there's loads more to get into. Deaths at veterans' homes are again front and center in the governor's race. Let's listen to GOP rival Aurora Mayor Richard Irvin speaking about that. This is the same person who blasted his predecessor time and time again for the tragedy that occurred at the Quincy Veterans' Home when 13 veterans lost their lives due to a Legionnaire's breakout. He swore that he would do better as governor. He failed. What's going on here, Dan? Well, you know, WBZ, my colleagues, Dave McKinney and Tony Arnold, broke that story about Quincy and the Legionnaire's uh, outbreak and the deaths there several years ago under Republican Governor Bruce Rauner's administration. Uh, Now we have... um, Again, a situation where uh, you have tragedies involving uh, people who serve the country. Um, we, we honor them on Memorial Day, on Veterans Day. But are we taking care of them the other 365 days a year when they're offered uh, housing in state-run veteran homes? Um, mm-hmm. One huge difference between Quincy and LaSalle, though, that I think experts have pointed out here on our airwaves as well, and that, that sort of... Um, a little bit of a hole in what Richard Irvin is trying to argue there. COVID is a obviously a respiratory disease, person to person. Legionnaires was much different. It was an issue of infrastructure, and the state is responsible, you know, for that infrastructure. So, is it an apples to apples comparison? Absolutely not. Mm-hmm. Could one of the Republicans in the general election? Um, to the general public in 30-second spots, uh, you know, meaning one of the two Republicans that's got, gotten the most funding. There's more than two candidates. But assuming one of those two goes through to the general election, could they put a lot of money behind that and say, hey, what about, you know, that's what they're going to aim to do. Yeah. Absolutely. Kimberly, what do you think about the, the political sparring going on here? Yeah, and and because it's dealing with such a vulnerable population, one that we really should be revering, people who served our country, and in many cases don't have a lot of money and really rely on the government to get their assistance, which they've more than earned, right? You would hope that politicians would not necessarily use this as the opportunity to go after each other, but instead they would try to show what they have done so that something like these tragedies will never happen again. In both cases, you probably can make the the claim that there was some negligence and there was mismanagement in in both cases, even though one is like, uh, you know, uh, a disease that is communicable and one is actual infrastructure issue. But it, it doesn't seem like anyone is really trying to figure out at the end of the day the moral of the story is we need to do everything we can to make sure veterans are taken care of is just a way to get more points to win. Hmm. How much does this affect Pritzker's chance of getting reelected, David? I, I think there are distinctions he can try to draw. In the case of the Quincy home, the state actually, the, the Rauner administration actually sat on information and didn't inform them to advise the public and much less protect the people. Governor Pritzker can say, hey, we're in the middle of a pandemic. It's, that's different. It's an airborne illness, et cetera. But those distinctions are likely to be lost on the voters. I think this is something that will hurt mm-hmm. the governor. Uh, but um, uh, it, it's... Uh, he bears some responsibility. They could have been quicker. There, there was an alert that uh, had they been on, on the case more quickly, some lives may have been saved. Dan, let's talk about a new poll from WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times. It shows Aurora Mayor Richard Irvin is no longer the Republican front runner. 
Well, it was assumed, I think, uh, by many observers of politics that this was a close race, but it may not be. Um, according to this poll and, and other things we've heard uh, about internal polling from, from candidates, um, Darren Bailey has a big lead, and I think it's uh, time to start uh, talking about who Darren Bailey is uh, for those who don't know. Um, clearly, I think J.B. Pritzker would rather face Darren Bailey than Richard Irvin. Um, Richard Irvin being 15 points behind is a very poor return on the $50 million investment in his campaign so far Mm -hmm. from Ken Griffin, who's the richest man in the state and the biggest donor in the GOP in this cycle nationally. You know, he gives a lot, I think we said last week to Ron DeSantis, the the Republican governor of of Florida. But, you know, clearly there are primary voters that are further to the right than the general population in this primarily blue state. And they feel that, um, that Irvin is not Trumpy enough. He may even be a fake Republican, as he's been accused of uh, by by his opponents. And um, Bailey is no doubt very pro-Trump, was very anti-COVID mitigation, mm-hmm. very much um, uh, anti-abortion. Actually, once introduced legislation to separate Chicago from the rest of the state, which you know, I, I profiled him a couple of years ago when he started gaining national notoriety for his opposition to the pandemic uh, pandemic mitigation measures. And Darren Bailey um, said, you know what, I was just trying to say that this is like uh, somebody who might divorce um, and, and we're being treated poorly by the Chicago area. He knew it didn't have a chance. But a lot of these symbolic things have um, made him appeal to the base, as yeah. they call it, in a Republican primary and to the tune of a 15-point lead, according to the Sun-Times WBZ poll out today. Well, in the interest of time, let's turn now, uh, Kimberly, to uh, Illinois' congressional district races. Things in the 7th District, especially, they're heating up. What's the significance of this race and this district? Well, the significance is it, you're dealing with Congressman Danny Davis, who it has been in office for, I believe, 25 years. So at the end of this year, it'll be 26 years. Uh, he is definitely a liberal, but he is not to the degree as far as a progressive to what, for whatever that means, um, as far as Keena Collins. And she is really just saying that it's time for a change. We need someone younger in this office. She has also been uh, an organizer and someone who has been an advocate out in the streets, especially during Laquan McDonald and other issues that have confronted, you know, people, especially in the city of Chicago. So she's running basically on the fact that it's time for someone new. They really are not that far apart on most issues uh, dealing with uh, crime, dealing with uh, economic development and all of those things in the city of Chicago, which are so important to people in that particular district. But we will say this, she has gotten a lot more money this time, a lot more funding, although he still edges her as far as the amount of money in his war chest. David, uh, a young Chicago progressive is um, is challenging uh, Representative Davis for the seat. Talk more about Kena Collins for us. Well, right. She came to attention uh, during the protests over uh, Laquan McDonald, and she's continued to be a voice for uh, uh, the community as regards to safety in the community and police accountability. The most interesting things about her, about her campaign, I think, uh, or one of them at least, is the Justice Democrats are backing her, and that is the group that put uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez into um, the House of Representatives, mm-hmm. and they've had a pretty good eye for young, uh, unorthodox candidates who 
can uh, kind of marshal support and win seats in Congress. And then when they get there, they make a difference. And yeah. one of the one of the arguments you hear against Danny Davis is he's been there for 25 years. What has he really accomplished? Mm-hmm. He's very popular in the community. He has connections back to the days of Harold Washington that stand him in very good stead with much of the community. But Keena Collins really seems to be building some momentum. It's going to be an interesting case as it plays out. Dan, what do you think? Does this race reveal divisions within the Democratic Party? Yes, but it also is a generational thing in um, you know the south and west sides of Chicago where you have you know, a generation that's been there for a long time, Danny Davis, Bobby Rush, who just announced he's retiring. You know How many people ran against Bobby Rush, including Barack Obama, saying that they needed generational change, that he was all talk and not effective, and Bobby Rush is leaving on his own terms? Will Danny Davis get to leave on his own terms, or will he uh, be unseated in a primary um, I think that remains to be seen. But voters are very loyal. And um, this, you know, Danny Davis, obviously a mesmerizing speaker with uh, an incredible radio voice, I should say. But, you know, that's here, neither here nor there with the policy Oh, you mean policy he's coming issues. for my job? No, that's not <laughs> he does I mean. have the voice of God. <laughs> exactly. I, I was going to say Moses. But, you know, um, <laughs> let, let's not get sacrilegious. But, no, seriously, I, I think it's it's a generational thing to some extent. And, and so far I haven't seen the changing of the guard in a lot of uh, races uh, very, you know, very reluctantly. But it happens. And, yeah. and could this be one of those cases? All right. I got to switch gears. National news. Last night, the House committee investigating the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol, they kicked off their series of hearings. Illinois Republican Representative Adam Kinzinger is one of nine members on that committee. What did we learn, Kimberly? Anything? I don't know that <laughs> I learned anything new. I mean, I, I, I feel like, you know, after watching all of the hearings and all of the discussion uh, over the last month, especially during the, the actual January 6th, especially the speeches that were done on that particular night when everything was fresh, after the congressmen were scrambling and running and crawling and all of the chaos. I don't know that I learned anything new. I had not heard about the one officer who got the concussion. That was something that was new. But the one thing that is, is going to be very interesting um, is to see whether there really is any appetite to really put this at the former president's doorstep and actually follow through with that, considering he was having that rally on that day and told everyone to go down to the Capitol and if they'll ever be able to make that connection. And Sasha, um, I had an interesting experience yesterday. I was at a 50th anniversary of Watergate program in which uh, John Dean and a prosecutor, Jill Weinbanks, who's a Chicagoan, who's on our board, they spoke about the Watergate case. Yes. And what was on my mind watching that hearing yesterday is how much the country has changed since then. That Republicans were part of the group who put Nixon out of office. And in this case, many Republicans, not all of them by Mm -hmm. any means, but a strong enough cohort of them are standing behind President Trump despite this really incredible case Mm -hmm. that is being built against him. And that just says as much about the country as it does about Trump or our No, great point. So many comparisons being made there between the two. Uh, We did see a lot of never-before-seen footage uh, and heard testimony from Capitol Police Officer Caroline Edwards, who uh, sustained a brain injury during the violent attack. There was a lot of emotion in her retelling of the the insurrection. Let's listen to a little bit. What I saw was just a, a war scene. It was something like I had seen out of the movies. 
I, I couldn't believe my eyes. There were officers on the ground. They were bleeding. They were throwing up. They were, you know, they had, I mean, I saw friends with blood all over their faces. I was slipping in people's blood. Dan, the next hearing scheduled for Monday morning. What do you expect to come out of these hearings in the next few weeks? Well, I think Liz Cheney laid it all out in her uh, seven-point uh, presentation last night. Um, I think we're, we're going to hear a lot more about um, how they try to connect all of this to Donald Trump and show that, you know, he was being completely disingenuous when he claimed that he thought that the election was rigged, that he was told that that had not happened, that there's no proof from, you know, the attorney general and his uh, and others on down. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you have Republicans. I'd like to find out who all the Republicans were that were seeking uh, pardons because you don't seek pardons when, when you, you're sure that you've uh, done everything by the book. Uh, it's just sad for our, our democracy. I go back to what I thought that very day. It, it's more than sad. It's frightening for the future of the country that a lot of people can look at video like this if, if indeed they tuned in. It wasn't on Fox News, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, look at that and say this was a dust-up, in the words of, uh, of a football uh, coach uh, from the D.C. area, or say that it was peaceful protest. But, you know, I, I know individuals who tell me there were no zip ties. I never heard about the zip ties. They're obviously not listening to this station. (sighs) On that note, that's WVON commentator and attorney Kimberly Egoen, David Grising with the Better Government Association, and WBEZ investigative reporter Dan Mahalopoulos. Thank you all for joining us. That's it for today's Reset. Stick with this podcast to stay up to date on the week's other top stories. We drop a new episode every weekday afternoon. And a reminder, you can now watch the weekly news recap on the WBEZ Facebook and YouTube pages. Go ahead. Go check it out right now. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Thanks so much for spending your time with us and have a great weekend. Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day.